And for those who remain, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. where we will consider this great text on the theme of love. First Corinthians 13, uh, we'll actually begin uh, at the end of verse 31. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, give us understanding that we might know your love, that we might know it aright, that we might live in and out of that love for your glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as much as people love this passage, I think we actually have a real problem with love. And the problem, I think, is this. We don't know what it is. We think we know what it is. We claim to know what it is. We write pop songs about it. How will I know when it's love? And we give bad advice and answer to it. But we don't really know what real love is. And look around. Look around at the lovelessness that pervades our culture. Look at the loveless marriages. Look at how we are infatuated with infatuation and think that that's enough to substitute for love. We have a problem with love 
that we don't know what it really is. Why? Why is that the case? I think this text does more than just tell us about love. It reveals why we don't know what love really is. And it does that in at least three ways. And the first that I want to consider is this. We confuse other things for love. See, there are many good things, glorious things, important things that don't rise to the level of love. You see this in Paul's introduction, that that he could have all gifts that give him the ability to speak with the tongues of angels. But if he doesn't have love, it's just making a lot of noise. That he can, he can have all knowledge and all prophetic powers and understand mysteries. He could know the most intricate details of the cosmos. But without, without love, he's nothing. He could have faith that is so powerful that he can say to the mountains, be gone from this place and they will cast themselves into the sea. But if he doesn't have love, that Power and faith is worthless. He can even give of himself, sacrifice, to offer his own body to the flames. But if he doesn't have love, he's got nothing. He gains nothing. He is nothing. This reminds me that warning that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount to those who busy themselves with many great actions, who tell themselves that all love is, all it really is, is just doing all the right things. And they say, Lord, Lord, look at all the things that I've done for you, for your glory. I've cast out demons. I've prophesied in your name. I have offered my body to the flames. And the Lord says, be gone from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. There was no relationship between the God of heaven and those seeking to impress him. There was no love. There was only selfishness. Look at me. Look at what I've accomplished. Look at what I've done. You should be impressed and welcome me with glory into your kingdom. Look at the mountains I've cast into the sea. Look at at the great, great prophetic gifts that I've uttered. Look at the sacrifices I've made for your kingdom. This is a dangerous place to be. Because we tell ourselves that, well, the opposite of love is is hate. And so let me avoid hate and I'll be okay. But, But really... Study this, and I think you will find that the true opposite of love is selfishness. It is being consumed not with the good of the other, but with yourself. And we have such a twisted view of love that we have convinced ourselves that we can be content to let selfishness masquerade as love. 
Look at all the good things I'm doing. Isn't that as good as love? How do we do that? How might you be letting selfishness masquerade as love? Maybe when you experience disunity in relationships, maybe between parents and children or between spouses or between neighbors or church members, that that you respond to that disunity or that conflict by seeking greater conformity. You you argue your case harder. No, you really need to understand where I'm coming from. See it my way. If you would only be more like me, we wouldn't be in this place of disunity or conflict. We, we don't find a way to delight in the differences, to listen, to be shaped or conformed by things outside ourselves. We want to shape the things outside ourselves to be more like us. And we let selfishness masquerade as love. I've tried so hard to convince them. Or we rely on all the wrong things, thinking that that will make our relationship healthy. We we marry because we have this physical attraction and chemistry. And we think that that, uh, that beauty will be enough to sustain many, many years of, of healthy relationship. Or, or we think that if we can only have that, that deep emotional connection with another person, as important as that is, that that, that, that will be enough. Or, or if we could just have uh, some unity in how we think about spiritual things and how we practice spiritual things, and we build our relationships on those foundations, and we find what we're actually doing is asking someone else not Not to believe what is true, but to believe like me. We don't give ourselves to another to meet their emotional needs. We seek for them to actually meet ours. We think that if our attractions and physical desires are satisfied, that will be enough for us to be able to care for those around us. And and we are suddenly deviously, destructively letting selfishness substitute and masquerade as love. We confuse other things, even good things, for love. We also, the second thing I want us to see, We minimize what love really is. Love, as we read of it in Scripture, sets an uncompromising standard. And we come to passages like this, and we start thinking about how it might work itself out in our lives, and we say, well, yes, I need to to do that, but until I reach this limit. And we get used to cutting corners. Our first house in South Carolina, um, the builders put wallpaper 
up everywhere, which is its own problem. But they didn't prep the wall. They just put it straight on the unprepped sheetrock, which meant if you tried to take it down, you may as well just take the sheetrock out and replace it. Terrible. I remember sitting in the kitchen, like peeling little flakes of, of sheetrock everywhere. Well, you could tell the, the previous owners had figured this out because at, at one point they just painted over it. And that's fine. So we moved and we're like, well, we're not going to fix that. We'll just paint over it too, a better color. And, you know, you, how long, you can keep doing that for only so long, but there's going to come a point when the, the glue gets old and the seams start cracking and the little edge peels. And you realize there's 13 layers of paint over this, this wallpaper that's already attached to the sheetrock. There's no fixing that. We get used to cutting corners and we think that's okay until all the cracks start to appear and it all falls apart. And we realize that all we've been doing is pursuing a standard of love that is no love at all. What is the quality and character of the love that you have for others? For your parents, your spouses, for your neighbors, for your friends. Let's just look at some of the examples that Paul himself gives us. He tells us that love is patient. That could mean a lot of things. At the very least, it means that, that you, if you love someone, you are willing to have your life complicated by a sinner. That, that, we, we, we can be patient when it's convenient, but when a sinner really complicates our life, we start to lose it. What were you thinking? How could you do this? You should know better. And we aren't lovingly patient. Paul tells us that love is, is kind. And we could maybe preach a whole sermon on this. We did, I think, when we preached on the, the fruit of the Spirit. I won't preach that sermon again. I think TJ preached that one anyway. But kindness, at the very least, means that we are willing to fight the temptation to just be critical and judgmental at those sinners who inconvenience us. That we don't respond out of irritation, we respond out of the overflow of love and kindness. As the Lord God himself did, even when Adam and Eve sinned, and he comes into the garden knowing all that has transpired, and yet he draws them out with questions. And he doesn't, he's not nice. He tells them the truth, the, the, the in kindness, tells them the disastrous consequences of what it is they've done, and yet he cares for them in the midst of it, providing for their needs, clothing their nakedness, offering them promise of redemption. What is the quality of the love that you have? Paul tells us that love does not envy. Are you in difficult relationships always looking outside to where the grass seems greener 
If I was married to that person, we wouldn't argue the way we're arguing. If I was, if I had those children, I wouldn't be stressed out all the time. If I had that job or that boss, and, and we, in, in doing so, and in, in envying what we think is better, we're never actually willing to step into the difficult and hard spaces with love to bring redemption and healing and care because we're too full of envy at everything else around us that we think is better. Love doesn't boast. It doesn't puff itself up. It doesn't brag and, and, and try to impress all the people around us with how good we are. Do you know how many hours I was in labor for you? You owe me the cleaning out this dishwasher. Instead, love boasts in that which is outside of ourselves. Boasts in the other. It lifts up and honors the other. You become a good student of those around you. What do they like? Where do they struggle? Where are they gifted? Who's God called them to be? How is God at work in their lives? And how might I, in love, be a part of that? find that love is not arrogant. It's not, not only is it not willing to boast, it, it, it doesn't walk around pompously waiting for everyone else to attend. It seeks the good of the other. It's not too proud to get its hands dirty, even when things have gone wrong. It's not above being able to say, maybe I'm the problem here. It's not rude. Because love refuses to use words as weapons to degrade and demean and oppress and dismiss, to criticize and cast down. It doesn't make assumptions about other people's motives, but it is kind, patient. It asks, it inquires, it connects, it builds up. It doesn't insist on its own way because it is willing to die to self, to sacrifice your own desires for the sake of another who is a wicked, vile sinner and does stuff wrong and irritable, irritating to you all the time and yet out of love. You don't have to insist on your own way. You can look for the good of the other. It's not irritable or resentful. It, it resists those needless moments of conflict. Well, you made me lose my temper. It makes a willing sacrifice, not with resentment. Fine, I'll do it, as if you are called by God to play the martyr. But in love, it gives purposefully, intentionally, 
willfully, without looking for anything in return, and without keeping a ledger of all the good things that you've done and all the ways you've been inconvenienced by the other. It's not resentful. And it doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing because it's, it's committed to true confession. Because it doesn't even rejoice in the wrongdoing that we ourselves perpetrate. You know, if I've heard one sermon or read one book on, on biblical headship, I've heard 20,000 and read 10,000 books. I'm, of course, exaggerating. But some of those books I've read twice. But we talk about headship in this who's the boss sort of framing, forgetting that it is a, a responsibility, a high and holy responsibility that those who have headship have the power to set the tone of that institution, organization, or relationship. So husbands, how many of you have set a tone of irritability, of resentment, of impatience, not a tone sacrificial love. Love doesn't rejoice with wrongdoing, it rejoices in the truth. Sometimes that means we have to step into the hard places and speak words of truth in love to someone who's gone astray. But how many times do we step in and and we speak those words and it's not in love? We haven't, we haven't built the foundation of love. We haven't modeled love. We haven't demonstrated love. We just come in and we have an axe to grind and we just lay it out there. And we don't even model that we are willing to hear the truth back. To listen. How do you see it? What am I missing? Love rejoices in the truth wherever it may lead, whatever that truth may be. And it's able to bear all things. This all here is it's, it's all kinds of things. Believe all kinds of like Love covers a multitude of sins. Right? If, if you are able, out of love, to offer forgiveness to someone who has inconvenienced you and wronged you, the, the cost of that is that hurt that you've experienced. You, you bear it. You don't get to take it out on the other person after you've forgiven them and make them do penance. You, in love, bear it. It believes all things because you aren't focused on what the other offers you, but you're focused on what God is doing in the other and what He's able to do in and through the two of you. It hopes all things, refusing to think that God is incapable of being at work in this situation, refusing to make others the source of your identity, because your hope is in what the Lord is able to do, who the Lord is. And so love endures all things, serving for better or for worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. 
We're thick and thin. Paul Tripp summarizes it in this way. And I like this. Love is a willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require the person being loved to reciprocate or be deserving. I'm going to say that again. Love is a willing self-sacrifice for the good of another. Does not require the person being loved to reciprocate or be deserving. Sit on that for a while. And ask yourself, have you minimized what love really is? Our problem is that what we know intuitively is true. It is impossible for us to love this way. And what this text tells us then is, is this last thing that I want us to see is that our real problem isn't that we don't love our spouse or our parents or our children enough. Our real problem is that we don't love the Lord enough. We are disconnected from the source, from the one who is love. See, Paul talks about love in verses 8 and, and onward in these eternal phrases. Love never ends. Some things cease, but love doesn't. It grows and it will come in perfection. When the perfect comes, when perfect love comes, when will that be? When will we see love face to face? Paul's not being oblique here. It's obvious what he's talking about. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is love, who has lived it, who willingly left his place of glory, took on the form of a servant, and sacrificed himself for the good of others. And not just any others, those who did not in any way, shape, or form at all deserve his love and who had no power to reciprocate it. He died for his enemies. And he himself worked to make them his friends. We tend to think of love in terms of, of lightning. Love at first sight. Oh, it was so electric. It was, you know, you're, you remember that, that first moment when you're, you're both reaching for the, the, the radio volume knob or, or the iPod or whatever it is you have in your car and, and your pinky's touched. Oh, that's love. Love's not like lightning. Love is like a tree. It grows and becomes bigger and stronger and more beautiful and more fruitful. And it thrives best in the soil of gratitude. And if you find yourself in a place 
Or you're thinking, it is impossible for me to love this person. And maybe you have their name in mind. Maybe they're sitting next to you. You aren't going to find it in yourself to be able to love them as they deserve to be loved, as God has called you to love them. You're not going to be able to dig deep and figure out a way to just grit your teeth and eke out a little bit more love for them. If you want your love for those around you to increase, your love needs to be planted in the soil of gratitude for Christ's love to you. For God showed his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God is love, and he's shown his love that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Again and again and again, Scripture calls us to set our eyes on love as it is, on love as who it is. And even if now we don't see him in his fullness, the day is coming where we will see him face to face. The perfect will come. He has promised that he will show up and the fullness of God's love will be made known. And that love will wipe away every tear and sorrow and care and concern and will make all things new. He's not waiting until then to start that great work. He's not waiting until he returns to plant that tree. Jesus pours his love out on his people now. He gives us his spirit. He grants us access to the Father. He reveals and communicates his love for us. He shows us his motivation tells us again and again and again who he is and who he is to us. So if we would know love as it really is, we need to know Christ. Our love needs to be shaped in his likeness, in his image. It's been called a cruciform love. A love that is in the shape of the cross. Love that is in the shape of Christ who revealed his love and his willing self-sacrifice for the good of others who didn't deserve it and couldn't reciprocate. What will it look like for you to gaze upon that loving person. To know and experience that love that he has for you, his child. To live out of that love. See it grow in your interactions with your roommate, classmates, co-workers, your neighbors, your children, your parents, your spouse, your friends. May God work this in us for his glory. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, show us your love as it really is.
that we would not be filled with despair at our inability, that we would not be tempted to make a different standard that is more accessible, that we would not substitute selfish self-satisfaction for your glorious love. Show us Christ. Mold us in his likeness and image and teach us how to work out that love in all our relationships for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.